This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Fly me to the moon. Let me play up there with those stars. Airline stocks certainly uh, always an interesting sector to take a look at. Savi Sith joins us right now, VP of uh, Equity Research at Raymond James, who covers the airline sector. Savi, let me start with uh, this tax bill. What what are the implications uh, of this bill for your sector? I think it's a, you know twofold. One is you know what it does for the economy because it is a very cyclical, uh, sensitive industry. So any you improvement think? to the economy is <laughs> absolutely a positive. And and then secondly, on a on a tax basis, you know there's a book tax aspect to it, which is definitely going to you know improve by uh, you know where with taxes coming down about 14 points. Uh, but more so on a cash tax basis, it's not just the corporate tax, it's the ability to uh, accelerate your depreciation. So there's, there's uh, some cash benefits as well for the group, uh, which we're still working through. Now, earlier or back in November, there was a provision that was put into the tax overhaul uh, provision inserted. And this had something to do with, uh, I guess, outside airlines, um, a provision inserted into the proposed reforms that would punish them. And that would, I guess, um, abruptly end an exemption, a tax exemption from tax that things like Emirates, uh, Emirates rather, and Qatar Airways have enjoyed on income derived from flights to and from the U.S. And I'm just curious, I think this was added to the bill uh, by a Republican senator from Georgia, whose state, is, as we know, is home to Delta Airlines. And it's also got a main hub, of course, Atlanta. I don't know if that provision is still in there. I don't know if you know it is, but I'm just curious. I, I don't believe it is. I, uh, okay. Don't quote me on it. But as far as I, I've, 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 from our reading, we don't see that in there. So when you look at the industry, and I was just looking at some of the stock performances, uh, airline stocks as a whole, roughly up about 9% this year. So they are definitely lagging the broader market. You've got the S&P up nearly 20% this year. When you look at the group, um, what's the outlook for 2018 when you look at the financials, the top and bottom lines? I think it's quite positive. I and mean, if even if you look at the financials in, in 2017, it, it was a very good year. I, I think what the stocks are reflecting is investor skepticism that once fuel starts moving up again, that the airlines will be able to hold on to some of the earnings that they're, uh, they're generating today. Uh, we think, you know, some of that will, will be eroded by higher fuel, but we think that it's probably going to surprise investors uh, how much of the airlines that are going to be able to hold on to, to the earnings. And this is not just the fuel-driven, uh, uh, you know, earnings that they're dry, uh, showing today. Um, so, so I think the stocks, you know, if we see fuel going up and we, and we see that uh, come through, I think the stocks will do much better in 2018. Um, one of the worst developments in my life as it relates to airlines is the Alaska acquisition of Virgin and watching them slowly <laughs> pare down some of the nice things about Virgin America. Uh, what do you see in the M&A front uh, in this sector, if anything, in the coming year? It, it's to be, we were expecting more M&A in this, in this group, but was, you know, the Virgin uh, Alaska acquisition or the Alaska acquisition of Virgin was a little surprising from a timing, a timing perspective. We, we figured it maybe it was the next downturn. We didn't think uh, you know there'd be a lot of appetite here. Um, it, Just because prices are thinking, high. 
uh, a surprise that they did it that early. Uh, you know, the the price that they paid eventually, it definitely got bid up. Uh, so it's definitely more than uh, you know the market was comfortable and, and definitely you know what they had planned on. Uh, but it, you know, Alaska has uh, has a great balance sheet, and, and they you know they're able to do this in a, a creative manner. Um, going forward, I mean, I, we think there's still room for for uh, kind of. For consolidation in this in this uh, group, but I'm not sure there's anything imminent, and, and maybe it's the, kind of the next down cycle that that drives it. Uh, but, but there's still room. There's still, I, I think, it's kind of too many players uh, it, uh, providing service here. Hey, I'm curious when you look at uh, the airline industry. Yep, they, you know, it's planes, it's flying us everywhere. It's those add-ons, what it costs for baggage fees and the like, and getting a seat with some extra um, space, but. Also, those loyalty programs and those credit cards, they become a high-margin enterprise uh, that has grown in size and value amid all of this airline consolidation. That's become a bigger business for these guys. It definitely has. And, it, you know, consolidation has definitely uh, helped with this because now, uh, you know, one airline can provide a more dominant network and it's far more valuable to a passenger to accumulate frequent flyer points on, on, a, on an airline because they can go where they would want to go and uh, and use those points uh, for, for merit, many different aspects. So I, I think consolidation has helped uh, the airlines uh, provide a kind of a greater value proposition both to the credit card provider and to the passengers. I think that's why it's become uh, so much more of a, 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 a larger driver of revenue for airlines today. And, and if you look at credit cards, I think it's a, it's also kind of the desirable uh, uh, type of card to have associated with an airline. I think what what you know the, what helps airlines is um, you know it is an aspirational product as you as you accumulate points. It there it, it is kind of a, a higher level of. Um, value that uh, uh, customers usually put on airline points than they do on some other points. When we see, uh, uh, we've seen a lot of uh, uh, announcements about the purchases of planes. Airbus seems to be uh, doing quite well here. What, where do we stand in, in that? Is that is that something to keep an eye on in, in terms of the, the capex the companies they're putting out, or even the airlines, the airplane makers themselves? Yeah, I think one of the differences that we're going to see, uh, you know, as this industry uh, post-consolidation and, and, and as this industry becomes a for-profit industry on a consistent basis, is a little bit more consistent uh, capital expenditure. What you've seen in the past is boom and bust cycles, and you get these big capex cycles, and, and you have nice new planes, and then you go through downturns, and you have... You know, you're stuck with planes that have uh, have not been refurbished for a long time, and I think what you're going to see from uh, U.S. airlines is a little bit more of a, a consistent spend. And so, I think you're going to see, you know, these these aircraft orders coming through consistently, not necessarily massive orders that they're going to get stuck with in a downturn, uh, but consistent orders. And and as long as the industry is healthy and you have this uh, refreshment cycle going on, I, I think that bodes well for for you know both Airbus and Boeing. Um- Got a favorite airline in this in the uh, group? Yeah, right now our favorite is Alaska. Uh, it's it's gotten uh, beaten down a little bit because of the acquisition that they're going through, and I know you're hesitant uh, with the, with what's going uh, to happen with uh, Virgin America. But I, I think the, you know Alaska has provided a really good value proposition uh, for customers in the Pacific Northwest for many many years, and and they'll pr- they'll bring that over uh, more consistently See, to the California as well. Here, so so I, here's what I think: so as a, as, a, as a Virgin, you know, I fly Virgin probably on average about once a week. And what my experience has been that that they're not fixing the planes like they did even a year ago, that they've crammed all the JFK customers from a, a 
pretty nice uh, terminal, as you know, nice airline terminals, an oxymoron, in Terminal 4 to allows you in a Terminal 7 that doesn't have uh, the capacity for all these people going through it. They don't have security line, TSA security lines, uh, and, and they're, they're degrading the quality of service. And, I, you know, they're, I'm, I'm one of many customers. I'm certain they're going to lose in this. Yeah, what you're seeing is, you know, initially there is a there is a pause in in kind of capex program, but what you're going to see is they're they're restarting that in early 18. You're going to get Wi-Fi in a lot of the Virgin planes. They are going through and refurbishing the planes, so it will be a very a different product than the Virgin America product. Uh, but and and on the on the airport side, um, I, I'm guessing you'll see improvements there. Though there are certain constraints uh, as to you know just. The gates that yeah, you have when you take to. when you take fifteen flights and you put it in two gates in a smaller uh, terminal, you're, you can't fit all the people there. It's a, and I just wonder. I just wonder at what point that starts to matter, or is this an industry where that we've seen time and again? It doesn't matter how bad the service is; people will pay. People want to pay less, and they'll take a really crummy service to get it. What you're seeing across the industry, though, is, is a lot of investment in airports, and we we wrote a note on this. You know, airport costs for airlines are going to go higher because now. You know, the first thing that you take care of is your people and and your kind of the the planes. And and once you start getting those fixed, you can move on to uh, kind of the airports and terminals. And that's what you're seeing there. You know, there's a lot of investment going on in Seattle, San Francisco. You'll start to see it in JFK, LaGuardia. So across the U.S., I think that you're finally getting the airport uh, infrastructure spending picking up here. And you're going to see that from a a cost perspective on airlines. But, um, you know, from a customer perspective, I I think that's heading in the right direction. Really quick, how does that work? Do, uh, do, do the airlines actually pay a certain fee for the gate on a regular basis, and that can that can rise? Just quickly, please. Y- yes. Uh, in short, that, that's exactly what it is. It's a cost per employment, um, and, and if you can if you can get more turns from a gate, that your cost per uh, employment goes down. But generally, yes. So the the investment that airports make are passed through to to airlines. All right. Savi Scythe, she's Senior Vice President of Equity Research at Raymond James, joining us on the phone from St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, talking about the airline uh, group. But as I mentioned, Corey, those stocks uh, as a whole up about uh, 9% this year, but certainly well below what we've seen in the large cap space. The S&P 500 up about 20%. All the small things, true care, truth. Bryant Riley has built a business focusing on small cap stocks and, uh, and a brokerage model that uh, is having great success. Uh, where others are failing, Bryant Riley joins us right now. Uh, he's the chairman of B. Riley Financial. Bryant, how are you? Hey, how are you? Uh, good. Glad to have you on. Uh, talk to me about what is it that you're you know you're expanding in a business where I feel like across the brokerage world it's contracting, and I wonder how you're including hiring. Heck, a lot of people who used to call on me. What what is it that you're doing that's different in terms of your business model? I think we we I, I think we had this conversation three or four years ago, or two or three years ago, and and um, you know you're saying I'm boring. Look, you're saying I'm repeating myself. So no, saying? no, I'm saying it's um it's some of it's played out, but you certainly we're we're turning left when others are turning right. You know what, what we see is a market that is driven by quants, um, driven by trends, and a lack of active proprietary research. And we think that's a flaw. And we think there's going to be an opportunity in providing uh, proprietary research to our clients. And that's always, over 20 years, that's been a consistent strategy that, that's worked for us. And, and right now, we're, we, just, we really think it's swung the other way too much. Too much. But, I mean, the performances have, have kind of bore out, if you will, that, you know, this passive world, this passive investing world has worked. Yeah, I think it's been an interesting five years. I think that 
Passive has gotten it right in, in terms of a lot of the social media companies. I think active managers really miss the valuation metrics around some of these these game changers in the, in the uh, specifically in, in and around social media. But when I see things like you know Seabird, uh, which I, I'm not going to really opine on their base business, but the stock you know was three dollars two days ago or a month ago and is sixteen based on a cryptocurrency announcement. Um, you're starting to see a lot of craziness out there, and it's being driven by exchange-traded funds, and I don't disagree that there's a space for and a place for some passive, but I just I think it, the pendulum has swung far too too far to the right. Would explain that. How how is it that uh, that passive in, in, in ETFs and indexes are driving the crazy moves in Seabird, a, a Bitcoin move, and we've seen a bunch well, of them. Well, so uh, so so maybe that's a little disconnected, but but the, there is a there is the investment um, climate right now. I think is just following a uptrend. Whether it's an ETFs, um, you know, people are, are chasing money and chasing stocks that are going up are, are super active, are super event driven. And so when I look at companies like, you know, a lot of companies that have been around for years and years and years doing the same thing and they make an announcement around something right now, it's obviously around cryptocurrency. It reminds me a lot of the days when in 2000 where, you know, Books a Million would come out with some sort of dot com business. Remember that? Up. Five hundred percent, and I'm well. It, it happened with Seabird before. I, we talked about this on the radio show. We did. Seabird announced that they were going to be an online trading platform, and all of a sudden the stock went bonkers. Uh, I wrote a story about it for thestreet.com. Brian, you remember me from those days, and and uh, and uh, you know, and, and Mariel Seabird herself called me furious because she didn't like the way the story worked yeah. out. But but yeah, we, we've definitely seen some some Bitcoiny froth right now. Uh, Small caps how, about kind of, a, how about an ETF? Because we're in the liquidation business in yeah. Great America. We're, we're very close to retail. How about an ETF that's betting against retailers? So there's a new ETF that just bets against all retailers. I mean, is that really intelligent investing? I'm not saying I'm not making a call on retail. It's just like you've had a total, total transformation. Now you have an ETF that specifically bets against retailers. It just feels to me like stock picking has been really depressed, and these big themes. But are, isn't that the are, same as kind of shorting the market or shorting retail? It is. It is. It's a way to short retail, and so you can do an ETF, or or you can do the work and go into the stores and analyze well, the balance sheet and look through free cash flow statements. And Brian, I just me, think. Let me yeah. ask you because you have to do the work. You guys work with companies, right? You're either raising equity or raising debt for them. Tell me what you're seeing in that space. What kind of companies are you working with that maybe indicate a trend? I'm thinking about for our listeners, news you can use that might pretend, you know, something we're going to be talking about a lot in 2018. So, you know, I think, I think the companies that are really interesting right now that have had transformational moves are, 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 are more boring companies. Like, when I say boring, 5 to 10% growers, but have been able to change, transform their balance sheet because of how low yields are. I, I will speak to, but just personally, we are a public company. We issue 10-year bonds at 7 and a quarter yield. Um, that, for us, Given what we see in our platform is really attractive, there's a lot of there's been an, an ability to change your balance sheet over the course of the last two years because investors have been screaming for yield. So we're finding really good companies that have been able to have so much more flexibility, and they're going to utilize that flexibility either for dividends and now with cap gains going down. Excuse me, um, with um, uh, corporate, corporate taxes, taxes going, going down, you're yeah. going to see more and more free cash flow yields to be used for what I think is. The benefit for shareholders and and smaller companies can do that a lot better than bigger companies. I, I just think they can move the needle a lot more if you're smaller. So I don't know if that specifically answers your question, but we're excited about 
that dynamic, there's been a there's been a real sea change in, in in the balance sheets and the flexibility of smaller companies. Well, it's it's certainly uh, uh, it's you know it's been really interesting and great to watch you grow your business and acquire a lot of companies. Other people couldn't figure out how to make work and make them work, um, and uh, and you know good old fashioned Wall Street research uh, finding a home. Uh, at B Riley, Brian Riley, uh, Chairman of uh, and CEO of B Riley Financial. Oh my God! Have you all been watching the news? I haven't. Of curb your enthusiasm. Just when you think Larry David can't get crazier, yes, he can. I need to get involved. Speaking of crazy, no, yeah. no. Dave, well, Dave maybe, Wilson, our stocks under Joseph joins right now, crazy. and I think this wouldn't be the worst theme music of all for Dave Wilson. But Dave, our stocks editor with his chart of the day. What do you got, Dave? Well, you know, I'm hanging out with you two, so maybe it Ouch. just sort of rubs off. Got but chilly all of a sudden. I digress. <laughs> I know you anyway, are, what am I? Yeah. this is all about enthusiasm for stocks. You know, here we are. You know, wrapping up what would be the ninth year of a bull market if we get to March. You've seen these sentiment indicators like Investors Intelligence Survey of uh, newsletter writers uh, with relatively high readings historically. And yet you've got Ben Anker, who's the uh, head of asset allocation at uh, GMO, the money management firm, uh, where Jeremy Grantham holds court, talking about the least enthusiastic bull market in history, or about the least enthusiastic anyway. So what's he focusing on to draw that conclusion? Specifically, he's looking at low volatility stocks. You know, this, this is a theme that's popped up the last few years. You know, own the shares of companies that don't bounce around so much when the market swings. Well, Inker points out that you'd expect those shares to trail the broader market if the bull was, as he put it, driven by excitement for the future or even a nice cyclical recovery, referring to the economy there. And then when you look at uh, an exchange-traded fund uh, with the ticker SPLV, it's a power shares fund that's based on the S&P 500 low volatility index, it's pretty much keeping track with the S&P 500 going all the way back to 2011. That's what the chart shows. So really, it's a, a sign of the lack of enthusiasm among investors, even if stocks have set records. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Larry David should track your chart of the day just for that. Maybe so. Maybe so. All right. What do you got, Corey? Let's get to Jutender Rawal. He's a Bloomberg Intelligence Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst uh, and looking at uh, – well, Internet Analyst. And he's looking at Amazon. Uh, and it's in a really, I think, groundbreaking report here on a, on a way to look at Amazon. You and I were talking about it last night, uh, Jay. And, and uh, essentially what you've done is sort of apply some of the same metrics that Alibaba uses – to describe, maybe over-describe their business and say, what if we looked at, yeah, yeah, at Amazon the same way? Right. So if you look at Amazon's revenue, it doesn't sort of show the real size of the business because the way they account for the third-party sellers is they just take the commissions and book that as revenue. A third-party so seller is what percentage of revenues, of uh, gross merchandise More revenues? than 50%. So more than half of the stuff that Amazon sells is actually sold by a third party. That is correct. But they don't report those sales as revenues. They only report the commissions they collect from the third-party sellers as revenue. So what we essentially did was we started right at the top. We looked at the uh, GDP impact of retail segments that Amazon can target, excluding China, and then worked our way down to GMV, to revenue, to profits. And one interesting thing that came out was 
if you look at the uh, Amazon's end market, total addressable end market that they can sell into, and this is excluding all the verticals that, like, you know, we have restaurants and food. Um, healthcare? Healthcare is still there okay. in that vertical. It's, they target 16% of global GDP or $10.7 trillion worth of retail end so market. So that's the total addressable market of that the is businesses the total- that they're in now plus healthcare. Plus which healthcare. they're not really in yet. Exactly. But, we, we get but this, is, this is more like a long-term view. So we try to do this projection through 2025 and see, you know, how fast are these end markets growing? So the key end markets here is e-commerce, cloud services, advertising. And sort of if you add up those end markets. And video. Uh, and vi- video, yeah. yes. Video sort of fuels all of these. But if, when you add up these end markets and see how fast they're growing, they're growing at a double-digit clip. Uh, and they are expected to grow a double-digit clip in the next couple of years uh, as well. So Amazon just needs to basically marginally beat the end market growth, whereas for the last 20 years they have tremendously beat the end market growth. Hey, Jitendra? So mathematically, it's um, very conservative to think that. 30 seconds left here. So those higher margin businesses, advertising, cloud, that also doesn't require the costs, right, of the warehousing and all that other stuff. So the, the overhead is a lot less. Absolutely. So retail is going to be a low margin business, but they have offsets. Advertising is going to be a big one. They're going to go after Google and Facebook in a big way. Uh, AWS is always going to be a bigger portion of their profits. And private label products, they are high margin too. The ones that um, Amazon is branding uh, by themselves and selling uh, them to you. So I'm just waiting for the government to start saying, uh, Amazon, you're too big. That's the biggest risk. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is part one of a three-part series on Amazon, so we're looking forward to uh, oh, getting it from you. We have to have you. him on two more times? Well, maybe. Really? <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. Maybe you can have <sighs> him on. Jajendra Worrell, he's Global Internet and Consumer Electronics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our 960 studio in San Francisco. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for our drive to the close. Today, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer at Wilmington Trust. They've got about $83 billion in assets under management. Wilmington based in Philadelphia. Tony in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here with Corey and me. Uh, You like the sectors, I was just looking at my notes, that are among the best performers in 2017. Tech, healthcare, the top two major industry groups in the S&P 500. You also like financials, the fourth best performing group, major industry group in the S&P 500. So basically you're saying the winners of 2017 will be the winners of 2018? We think that's right, with the exception of actually of healthcare. So we think the healthcare sector is not going to benefit particularly from the tax reform package. We actually think that there's going to be stress with the elimination. So you don't like healthcare? We don't like healthcare, the elimination of the individual mandate is actually going to start in 2019, not 2018. But but as we start anticipating that, there's going to be a lot less money going into the healthcare sector from a consumer standpoint. On the other hand, when we look at financials and tech, we see lots of forces continuing to propel those from Such slightly as, yeah. steeper yield curve. So the bond market finally got the memo today that there's tax reform. For today. We'll see. For today, right? <laughs> so we're, we're actually forecasting the end of next year, a 315 long bond. Wow. So that's a pretty big steepener, if you will. Now, yeah. we are going to get some moves on the short end of the curve as well. But so overall, stop talking about the flattened yield curve. We think so, right? We think it's overdone at this point. 
And so a strengthening economy, slightly steeper yield, yield curve, probably three hikes next year, and lots of forces on the technology side. So you look at the overall disruption to the supply chain for goods and services, you see technology involved. Think Amazon, think financial services, robos, think digital movies and music, um, Airbnb. And all these forces are pushing downward pressure on prices and holding inflation in check. At the same time, we're reaching the bottom on the labor market. There's just no more capacity. And so that's going to start to create some some upward pressure on, on wages, but it's going to be capped because there's a lot more new technology to come into play, driverless, driverless cars, et cetera, et cetera. And pressure on wages in certain areas. I think I saw a stat uh, from Satya Nadella, Nadella excuse me, of Microsoft, and it was something like 500,000 jobs opened in the tech community. That's right. And that's where you see a lot of pressure, wage pressure. You do. And the more skilled jobs. So, And we're, we're, we're at Wilmington Trust as part of the M&T family of banks. And we look across our footprint and we talk to our clients every day, our customers, and they can't find accountants. They can't find chief financial officers, investment professionals. They can't even find skilled construction workers on the real estate side. So almost any kind of skilled laborer is in short supply today. Um, where do you see the most uh, the de-inflationary pressure coming from? You mentioned technology. I think that that's part of this that we don't, you know, the, 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 just the expansion of Amazon we were talking about in the last block uh, has a significant impact, I think, on, on, on prices in America. Absolutely. So think about, uh, I, I alluded to some of the forces that have already occurred. And again, moving forward, I think healthcare is an area where there's going to be a tremendous disruption going forward due to the advent of new technologies and how health care is delivered. And again, we think that the, the what do you automobile- mean by that? We hear that a million times about you know disruption in terms of how healthcare is delivered. Are you saying robots instead of individuals providing care, or what? So think about an Apple Watch, for example. So I can see in my Apple Watch my heart rate, and the Apple Watch now has an app, which is in beta, that actually, um, and I don't own any Apple stock, by the way. Um, uh, uh, that's in beta, which, ele- which actually can detect whether or not there's an irregularity of my heart rhythm. Um, and so that could prevent, hopefully not in me, but nonetheless, could pre- it could actually foresee a heart attack before it happens. And think of all the care mm-hmm. that's saved by preventing that from occurring. So we don't get to the extreme positions in healthcare. We get people to do more preventive care. That's one of the things that we're talking costs. about. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Okay. Uh, as, lo- as, lo- well, uh, as well as one of the basic... Uh, improvements in healthcare we've already seen, which is the, the the to large degree elimination of errors in hospitals due to the digital tracking of patients and the provision of services. Yeah. Uh, so on on the long side, I mean, what kind of uh, changes do you see sort of going forward under the next year? On the what side? Well, uh, when you look at stocks to own, like oh, the, yeah, biz- sure. Businesses where you're going to see accelerating growth. So I, I think that the technology story is still very much intact. I think the technology sector is part of overall share of GDP. It's probably in the low 20s. I think it gets 25% of overall economic activity in the United States, which is a big piece of the overall um, pie. And when the you say technology, what technology? Are you talking Microsoft? Are you talking Apple? Are you talking Google? Are you all, talking all, AMD? All the above. So everything that fits in that S&P sector talking of Oracle. technology. Yep, all, all those kinds of things. Social media, I throw it all in there. Cloud, put it all in there. 25% of GDP in five years. So that's a big number. Um, financials, we talked about the steepening yield curve, an elevated yield curve, mm-hmm. uh, less regulation, um, along with a continuing demand 
for services from because families are wealthier on the one hand, and companies are going to be going through a capex cycle. We believe as we start to see wage inflation, and so companies are going to need to finance infrastructure. Part of that could be financed through the repatriation of capital. Part of it's going to need to be financed through uh, through loans. So there's lots of different reasons that the financials we believe have a lot of uh, headroom from this stage in the market. Another thing I would say is that one of the big stories we believe for next year, in addition to the increasing yield curve to maybe 315 on the long bond, is going to be a rotation out of U.S. stocks into non-U.S. stocks. So if you look at valuations and you look at where the global economy is outside sorry, of the U.S. I'm sorry, out of U.S. stocks? Out of U.S. stocks. Oh, stocks. Excuse me. I thought you said docs, like S- documents. Excuse me. I'm like, what? Okay, so yes, out of, yeah. Docs. Well, that's a rotation right. that's been going on. Well, it, people it, have been gonna, talking about it. It's, the people have been talking about it. I think it's going to accelerate. Yeah. So and Europe? Europe, J- Japan even, believe it or not, yeah. uh, and the emerging market space. Which have done really well this year. That's right. They've it's not been an easy run. It's been back and forth, but emerging markets have uh, had quite a And even the overall. most recent data continues to out-deliver outside of the U.S. and in the emerging markets. So break open the champagne right now if you're bullish on the market? I think next year is going to be a story in two parts. I think the first half of the year is going to be very bullish. And after you get through a pretty significant shift in the yield curve, you're going to start to see some corrections in the equity market and volatility will increase. Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer at Wilmington Trust, with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. We're moving, we're shaking, we're talking about the stocks on the move in the Tuesday session. Carol Master, Corey Johnson, let's kick it off with the S&P 500. 187 names in the index uh, higher today, 315 lower, three unchanged. I want to talk about uh, Apple, though, today, because, Corey, it got a rare downgrade after rising more than 50%. Yeah, uh, Apple's massive run might be drawing to a close, at least according to one Wall Street firm, uh, the tech giant getting a rare downgrade uh, earlier this morning from Nomura Instant analyst Jeffrey Caval, who says that iPhone X sales to iPhone 10 sales, as well as other positives for the company already baked into the stock price, according to him, he lowered his rating to neutral. Here's what he said. He says, we argue that the stock's gains for the iPhone 10 super cycle are in the late innings. We believe unit growth, if not quite average selling price growth, is well anticipated by consensus and historically full multiple. He added that the boost from services, not enough to lift the stock further at this point, and that registration might also repatriation, excuse me, might also be priced in. We're talking about repatriation under the tax overhaul, which will allow those companies with overseas uh, revenues to bring them back at a much reduced tax rate uh, into the United States. Keep in mind, Apple downgrades have been very rare this year before today. Two cuts to neutral or the equivalent in June were the last ones, according to our data. One of those firms has since upgraded the shares. Analysts, though, still overwhelmingly positive on the stock. It has been the largest contributor to the S&P 500 index gains this year. 36 firms rating it a buy, Corey, eight hold and zero sell recommendations, at least according to those that we track here on the Bloomberg. All right. Well, I want to talk implants, dental implants, spinal implants. You're getting 
Uh, I, my teeth are okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway. My spine. I've been accused of being spineless. Actually, never. Um, but uh, a company that makes uh, these implants, uh, dental implants, spinal implants, has some trauma products, surgical products. Zimmer Biomet Holdings out of Warsaw, Indiana. Announced a new CEO today. Uh, stock uh, responded very positively, uh, up 6%. Uh, the new CEO talking a little bit about uh, some of the turnaround plans at the company uh, and a guy who's had a lot of success in medical devices. Uh, would, he used to oversee a company, uh, Covidian, uh, which was integrated with Medtronic uh, a while back. But uh, Zimmer's sales growth has, tra- has trailed its peers uh, since they bought Biomet uh, in early 2015. But uh, a turnaround uh, underway and announcing those plans and describing those plans today in a conference call seemed to really excite investors. Investors in the uh, stock of Zimmer Biomet uh, rising 6% on the day. Mm, bullish move there. Hey, let's talk about another bullish move. Uh, up 6.8%, up more than $6 a share. We're talking about Darden Restaurants, the number one gainer in the S&P 500, closing the Tuesday trade at 96.69 a share. Stock is up 33% so far. Uh, this year. You know the name well. Darden boosting its adjusted earnings per share forecast for the full year guidance, beating the average analyst estimate. So they're now looking at a fiscal year adjusted EPS of 445 to 453. Uh, Earlier, they had seen 438 to 450. Estimate out there is 444. Second quarter sales are looking for 1.88 billion. That's a little bit better than uh, the forecast and estimate that's out there. So uh, some upbeat uh, news uh, and expectations for forecasts. And uh, of course, uh, Darden you know, you've got Olive Garden, you've got Longhorn, you've got some other things. Uh, anyway, they also talked about comparable sales at some of those names uh, being up uh, versus uh, the consensus estimate. And that uh, gave that stock a boost, up 6.8%, number one gainer in the S&P 500 today. A right, real quick, Riot Blockchain, tickers R-I-O-T. Up 6% today, 5.8%. The company did a, a, a kind of deal that I, I'm told is, is not uncommon, but I've never seen it before. They sold $37 million worth of stock that can't be traded. Nice. Unregistered shares of stock. So $37 million into the company coffers or with the, the, whoever this is selling shareholders, I'll look into that. But uh, they, they uh, announced this $37 million sale. These, this, these shares won't be registered until probably six months down the line. And as a result, they can't be sold. Not only can they not be sold, they cannot be loaned out so that short sellers can't short the stock. So it was actually a way to kind of mess with people who are already short the stock uh, and, and give the stock a boost, issue more shares, but not actually let the shares be tradable or sellable or shortable. So the, the borrow in the stock, I've talked to a, a couple of people this morning, couldn't get any borrow to try to short this thing. Uh, and now that there are more shares out there, but not really unregistered shares sold for $37 million. Uh, just amazing uh, what's going on with these these uh, penny stocks that are now giving Riot a market cap of $373 million. I feel like next we're going to see like Procter & Gamble Bitcoin. We're going to see like J&J Bitcoin. <laughs> it's like throw Bitcoin. I, I don't know. We're <laughs> no, going to see that. I just mean like, you know, you throw Bitcoin in a name. Uh, and it's funny to look at the financials on that name because revenues, uh, we're not seeing growth there and certainly no earnings. Uh, let's get to the volatility index report on this Tuesday. And the VIX in the Tuesday session up 4.5%, still closing below 10 just barely at 9.97. This is Bloomberg. All right, it's time for today. Dave Wilson's Stock of the Day. Dave Wilson, our stock editor, what do you got? I've got Funko. Now, the name is spelled F-U-N-K-O. The toy company would no doubt emphasize the fun part as it makes collectible pop culture figures. But if you're invested in the shares, you might well be in a funk. 
Funko made its initial public offering on November 1st at $12 a share. Began trading the next day under the ticker FNKO. Stock plunged 41% in its debut. So we're talking about a busted IPO. And since then, the shares haven't even gotten back to $10. Even so... Uh, analyst optimism was unshaken. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows that going in today, they had eight recommendations on the stock, and all of them were buys or some variation. Now, that United Front on Funko finally cracked when BMO Capital Markets cut its rating to market perform from outperform. Analyst Garrick Johnson wrote in a report that he checked with retailers and found rising inventory levels and markdowns. BMO's call set Funko to a new low of $6.27 today. Stock closed at six thirty-five. That's a loss of 11%, the steepest since that first day decline. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.